మార్తం Welcome to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. My name is Brian Gigantino. During the Russian Civil War between May 1918 and February 1921, the Democratic Republic of Georgia, known as the First Republic, was a nominally independent state controlled by Social Democrats. These Georgian Social Democrats were Mensheviks. Formally, Menshevism and Bolshevism were two distinct wings of the empire-wide Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. In the decades leading up to 1918, Menshevism and Bolshevism in Georgia had more politically in common than not. However, over time, strategic and political differences set them apart. Georgian Menshevism, led by Noe Jordania and others, blended a particular vision of Georgian nationhood and national liberation with their Marxist politics. But in 1921, as Bolsheviks began consolidating power around Georgia, the Red Army invaded with the help of local Georgian Bolsheviks, and the First Republic was no more. In Georgia today, the First Republic exists as an important reference point of Georgian independence and sovereignty, and the only example of modern Georgian nationhood. However, the Marxist politics of its founders and the intimate political upbringing they shared with Bolsheviks in Georgia is often ignored or disregarded. So what does the First Republic really mean for Georgia today? To explore this and more, Sopo Japaridze and I welcome Stephen Jones as our guest. Stephen Jones is a historian and political scientist and a self-described socialist who has been studying and writing on Georgia since the 1970s. He is an expert on Georgia's First Republic, authoring the now-classic 2005 study on the topic, Socialism in Georgian Colors, The European Road to Social Democracy, as well as an excellent study on post-Soviet Georgia, Georgia, a political history since independence. Stephen, tell us a little bit about your first time visiting Georgia in the Soviet period. So, um, while I was doing my master's degree at the University of London, I became interested in the question of non-Russian peoples in, in, in the Soviet Union. At this time, there was very, very little research on, on the non-Russian peoples. Uh, most of the focused research, because people were interested in getting jobs, was on things like criminology and arms control, these sorts of things. When I first decided to look at the Georgian case, my supervisor told me, don't do it you won't get a job. Uh, of course, he couldn't anticipate the fact that um, uh, in the 1980s, along comes Mikhail Gorbachev, and uh, the national issue suddenly becomes uh, an explosive issue, and uh, uh, I became very busy. But I, I first went to Georgia in 1978, and um, this was, of course, late Brezhnevism uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, I was very surprised in many ways to find the sort of Soviet Georgia I did find, which was, uh, you know, it was clearly fin de siècle. You know, everything was sort of crumbling and coming to an end. Um, and it was a very sort of uh, lavish lifestyle for many of the Georgians that I mixed with at this time. 
young Georgians who really weren't concerned about um, getting a job, for example, because education was free. So I would meet Georgians with multiple degrees. Uh, and I would meet, um, you know, I'd meet Georgians, multiple architects, for example, who couldn't find work at that time. Um, uh, but they could, um, you know, they could continue studying. Uh, so there were, you know, it was it was a really um, quite extraordinary place for me at this time. You know, coming from London, a struggling student, and uh, and finding that actually uh, many, let's say, middle class Georgians at this time were living far better than I was in London. Um, so it was it was a very interesting place to be at this time. Um, it was like observing, you know, the crumbling of the empire from from within. And did you, uh, were you able to go anywhere else in the Soviet Union at this time? And how was Soviet Georgia maybe in comparison? Um, yeah, I had uh, visited um, other parts of the Soviet Union, um, and in particular, of course, Russia. I'd been to the Kuban. Uh, I'd spent some time in Leningrad and Moscow. So, I, you know, there were points of comparison. Uh, I've been to Ukraine as well. Um well, Georgia, as always, uh, was a little different from, from the other places I visited in the Soviet Union. And, you know, we could go into a long conversation about why it was different. Um, it, 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 it was, of course, under Moscow's control, but uh, it, it had uh, many more opportunities to do its own thing, let's say, um, you know, uh, this was a problem in the Russian Empire too. Um, you know, the further you were away from Moscow, the more flexibility you had in some sense. Um, in the Russian Empire, Georgia was highly under-policed. It was, it was a place where um, you know, the, 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 the Russian Empire was poorly represented, actually, in terms of the numbers of officials and, and policemen, although there was a big the, the army was, of course dominant in, in Transcaucasia at that time. Um, so uh, Georgia, yeah, in, it, was, uh, it, was, it was very interesting. You know, one, one of the things that made it different, of course, was um, the fact that uh, it, it had uh, more access, I suspect, to, to Western influences at that time because of the ports of uh, Batumi and Poti. Um, and that, of course, um, increased the potential for the black market in Georgia and the black market also sort of just opened up other things that you could do um, that that possibly was not possible in other parts of, of the Soviet Union at this time so for example you know I met my wife Marina uh, my well at that time not my wife in 1978 um, her father was a civil engineer he had a chauffeur uh, I was driven around in this chauffeured car by a Soviet official. Um, and we went to uh, illegal bookshops to get illegal literature. Um, it, was, it was fascinating. It was just this, it was an otherworldly place. The Soviet state was uh, chauffeuring around the illegal bookstores. <laughs> That's exactly right, yeah. This was the sort of, it was a, a very strange place. Um, and you know what 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 was interesting for me you know i was a, at that time uh, you know and I, I still am a committed socialist um and um you know here i was in the soviet state a socialist state 
uh, where where the bourgeoisie was was plain and present, you know. And obviously, I'm not talking in Marxist terms, uh, but you know, there was a strong privileged middle class, and and they could do things. I mean, for example, watching movies that were you couldn't watch anywhere else. Um, you know that was um, accessible to to the Georgian elite, and, and I'm sure it was accessible to to elites elsewhere in the Soviet Union. But uh, it, it was it was a very strange hybridic world where, on the one hand, there were these controls, but on the other hand, there were were multiple ways of getting around them. You know, actually, uh, it's interesting you mentioning that there's this kind of uh, Georgian Soviet elite at the time. And, you know, I've also read about these ruble millionaires in Abkhazia or other places who are able to sort of through corruption, um, basically accumulate small amounts or large amounts of capital at the time when such a thing was not uh, legal. And I'm curious just from you, again, your own observations of being there plus what you know, um, did you observe any kind of social or class tensions uh, between elites and lower classes that were uh, living in Soviet Georgia at the time? And if you did, how did it manifest? Well, there were tensions uh, in the sense that, um, you know, there were, um, I, you know, I'm not sure you'd call them labor strikes, but there were there was certainly labor dissent. Um, but it was um, almost invisible. Um, there was this enormous chasm between uh, the local Georgian elites and uh, the workers living in Didube and uh, you know Avchala and other places. That it was uh, neither the twixt would you know not, the, the, there was no meeting at some level uh, between these these two societies, right? Um, you know, there was also a, a sense that, um, you know, life was, you know, the basic needs and, and uh, were being met by this system. Um, and of course, uh, officially at least, um, the working class and the peasantry were given um, uh, sort of rhetorical support as the leading social groups in, in Soviet society. Um, they were they were seen as the uh, you know sort of the salt of the earth that, that that sustained the Soviet system in some sense. But by then, of course, this wasn't the reality at all. Um, but um, yeah, it, it you know uh, you you would meet lots of people. I would meet lots of people in 1978, 79 through to early 80s, um, in the circles that I mixed in at that time, who'd never traveled traveled on public transport. It was already apparent this this privileged elite, um, and um, it it, uh, it it continued right into the 1970s, early 80s. Yeah, and to what degree were there continuities between pre-Soviet and Soviet um, sort of elites in Georgia? And to what degree did the Soviet Union disrupt or sort of re-alter them from these, you know, pre-Soviet uh, imperial, uh, especially local aristocratic kind of forms? 
in Georgia? Well, the the real, you know, the transformation came in 1917, 1918, right? Because Georgia um, separated itself from the new Russian Soviet state or, or actually separated itself from the Tsarist state um, and was independent, as we know, between 1918 and 1921 and uh, um, began, let's say, a transformation of Georgian society. Um, you know, politics completely changed. So one example simply would be um, the introduction of free elections in Georgia in February 1919 for the Constituent Assembly. Um, uh, the, the removal, for example, of all property qualifications for voting, which was the tradition under Tsarism, um, and giving women the vote, for example. Um, so uh, the, the transformation at least began uh, in 1917 through 1918. Um, so I don't think, you know, the Soviet Union, when, when it reoccupied, when it occupied uh, independent Georgia in February of 1921, um, you know, it, the, the Soviet system in the 1920s shared certain roots with Georgian Social Democrats who led the First Republic between 1918 and 21. They were originally all of them were Marxists, um, and they all actually were in the same party, the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. So there were there were quite a few common roots. They knew each other. Um, you know, they had shared exile, um, um, shared many of the same ideas. But it must be said that the Georgian Social Democrats, particularly after 1905, um, really began to develop in a different direction from the mainstream Russian um, Social Democrats, in particular the Bolsheviks, but also the Russian Mensheviks. They, Georgians did go in a separate direction in, in many, many ways, different policies. Um, and, you know, by 1917-1918, the Georgian Social Democrats were considered to be the enemy by the Bolsheviks, right, and vice versa. So um, the polarization, if you like, between uh, these original comrades who shared Marxism really was very wide indeed by 1918. So when the Bolsheviks came in in 1921, it was really, they brought in some very different ideas about how to construct society. Um, um, there were continuities, but there were also major differences. What are some of the major differences and where are some of the continuities? So, you know, for example, um, the Georgian Social Democrats considered, you know, think of the title of the, the state. It was called the, the the Democratic Republic of Georgia, right? Uh, and there was a reason the word democratic was in there. Um, this was uh, Noy Jordania, who was chairman of the government of, of Georgia. It, this was very much central to his understanding of what the revolution meant and how the state should be constructed. So he, it wasn't just a Georgian Republic, he said. It was a Georgian Democratic Republic. And what that meant, very interestingly, was um, something that went beyond traditional bourgeois republics in Europe, in his view. So it wasn't just about creating a legislature. 
based on free election. It was also about creating popular power. So there would be the creation of eroba or local governments, um, institutions of self-government, uh, elections of judges, uh, elections of, of government officials, uh, referenda, so that the popular voice could be expressed uh, as well as the legislative voice, right? The legislator's voice. So he had a very specific idea as to what he wanted to see. Um, it was, in that sense, at least the aspiration was for what we might call a deliberative democracy today, right? Um, one in which um, there is minimal separation between uh, the, the, the governors in the legislature and the governed. Um, the governed would, would, would have far more participation in, their, in, 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 in governing themselves. So that, that, that was his idea, and that's why the word democratic was in the title. Um, and the other part of it was that Georgian social democrats understood, you know, because of the geopolitical situation, that they, they had to make some, co some compromises. Um, and they had fused into the revolutionary idea, the idea of uh, national cultural development. Um, so the Georgian social democratic version of socialism was fused with the idea of national liberation. And um, there are lots of arguments about this. You can see it in, in the writings of Neujordania, Kaki Chenkeli, who, who was for a while um, the, the foreign minister in the First Republic. Um, uh, you can see um, this very innovative um, attempt to combine the ideas of socialism and internationalism with the ideas of national independence and national cultural development uh, for Georgians. Um, so, and, and, and at the same time, they believed that they were not creating a proletarian dictatorship. They were creating a social democratic state. That was their goal. Um, you know, ultimately, yes, you know, socialism, internationalism, and so on, but, but they had a very specific goal, um, to create uh, sovereignty for a small nation, namely Georgia, right? When the Bolsheviks came in, of course, they had very different ideas about that. Um, you know, proletarian internationalism, um, uh, the, the importance of large states rather than small states, right? Um, um, centralization, uh, in particular, when it came to the Communist Party, um, so it was it was a very different approach uh, to um, the construction of a state, uh, and I, I say that, although in the nineteen twenties, of course, there was this policy of what we know as colonization or indigenization, the idea that the republics in the Soviet Union should be given uh, the opportunity to develop their cultures, their national cultures, right? Um, but this was a policy that, that barely lasted a decade uh, before Stalin really began to impose um, a, an authoritarian and highly centralized view 
of, of the Soviet state. Um, um, but there was, an there was an attempt in the 1920s, and you, you, you got some very interesting um, Georgian Bolsheviks, people like uh, Budum Divani, uh, even Pilipe Maharadze, uh, who, who believed that, um, and, and even campaigned for, um, you know, Georgia, for example, having its own foreign ministry, um, uh, Georgia having its own currency. Uh, Georgia being able to negotiate uh, with other sovereign states uh, on questions of trade. These sorts of things were promoted early on by, by Georgian Bolsheviks, right? Um, but, uh, you know, there was a lot of resistance at the center to this. Lenin actually supported these, some of these ideas, and it was the, the, this issue in particular that led to the break between Lenin and Stalin um, before Lenin finally, you know, um, in, in 1923 had his stroke and the final stroke that, that really incapacitated him. But he, you know, one of the last letters he wrote was in support of uh, what were known um, uh, pejoratively as the national deviationists. Um, named, and, and the Georgian Bolsheviks were an outstanding example, if you like, of these national deviationists were trying to create uh, more powers for the republics, a more genuine federal federalism, right? Um, but then you had other Bolsheviks who were very powerful, like Sergio Ojonikidze, um, who who um, were working against these ideas and wanted to create a Soviet Transcaucasian Federation, which which they did. Um, and, and greater centralization um, in, in Moscow with control of party life um, uh, in a very sort of hierarchical uh, way. Um, and uh, so there was a battle, and, and unfortunately the Georgian Bolsheviks, um, who wanted more independence for, for Georgia, lost that battle. Um, and, um, you know, gradually through the 1920s, um, the... The, the, the freedoms that had um, been maintained, um, including, for example, the freedom to write about the revolution in an honest way, um, they were removed. Um, one of the very serious incidents, of course, was the 1924 uh, revolt um, against Bolshevik power led by Georgian Social Democrats. Um, which also was a turning point that um, made Georgian Bolsheviks realize that, you know, um, they, they were only going to give very limited toleration to any opposition. I think I've heard you say this before, but mostly like the Bolsheviks in um, taking power in 1917 and Mensheviks, say, in, in Georgia, but they pretty much were doing the same thing. Right. As far as like dealing with sort of a crumbled, you know, inheriting and crumbling, well, in the Russia sense, empire, Georgia sense, like a colony or. And so I think I've heard you say they've had they had similar responses, how to deal with um, building, right, rebuilding economy, rebuilding the whole society. You, you mean between the, the, the Georgian Social Democrats and, and, and the Bolsheviks? Yeah, not between the Georgian version, but parallel time timeline. So, like, so people are in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg doing the same thing that 
people are doing in Tbilisi, right? Everyone's sort of responding in a similar way as far as similar policies. Yeah, I mean, you know, think about the 1920s as a really quite exciting period in which there was a lot of debate about the future of, of the Soviet state. There was room for opposition and dissent. Um, there were different prognoses, right, about the future of, of socialism in, in, in Soviet Russia. Um, uh, you know, this was the time, of course, that Lenin realized that war communism was a temporary phenomenon and uh, was actually uh, uh, disastrous for the economy and, and switched to the new economic policy, NEP, um, which was accompanied by, um, you know, some cultural and political loosening. Um, but, you know, although this was going on, there were very interesting debates within, within the Bolshevik party at this time, particularly in the first half of the 1920s. Um, you know, you must remember at the same time that the Bolsheviks felt they were under siege and um, they had inherited this uh, this very centralized vision of the party. Um, you might remember that in 1921, they passed a resolution that effectively tried to ban opposition in the party, right? Um, so that, that tendency was also there. And so, for example, the Mensheviks, the Russian Mensheviks, very soon were put on trial and and expelled, you know. So alternatives to Bolshevism, even on the left, were quickly suppressed. So again, it's it's you know, you 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 see points of hope, maybe, you know, in the sense that there were these debates going on in the party and there were alternatives that were presented. There was the workers' opposition, for example, within the, uh, within the Communist Party. But unfortunately, you know, um, uh, after the death of, of Lenin in 1924 and, and the rise of Stalin and, and the way that he manipulated alliances with Kamenev and Zinoviev and others and the, the, um, the marginalization of Trotsky and so on, you know, by by the second half of the nineteen twenties, I think it was clear um, that that the Soviet Union was going in in a, in a in a more authoritarian direction, and of course, with collectivization at the end of the nineteen twenties, um, you know that that direction was it was clear, um, and and you know opposition was was no longer tolerated, um, and and all the republics you know they the, the one thing that the republics had that had, had helped them i think to sort of resist some of these more sort of uh, centripetal forces that were coming from from moscow uh was the national question because of this policy of kurenizatsi or indigenization um you know the uh, um there were there were possibilities of a greater cultural freedom that was reflected perhaps in more literary freedom um, for, for writers and poets and such. You know, in Georgia, of course, it was the, the Blue Horns who were the most famous of these poetic groups that continued to uh, pursue not so much a Georgian national tradition of, of poetry, but experimental, let's say.
Um, but there was also, as I recall, like in um, what used to be Communard Park, Alexandrov's um, Park, that there was um, Bolshevik soldiers that gathered. And I believe that they were shot by Mensheviks, weren't they, in 1917? Yeah, you know, so if we're going to go back to the First Republic, right, um, then, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very complicated time, obviously, it's a time um, in which um, there was just it was a, a a major political division between the Georgian Social Democrats on the one hand and the Bolsheviks on the other, right? Um, and 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 the Bolsheviks were seen as a threat to the uh, to Georgian social democracy and eventually also to the sovereignty of, of the Georgian First Republic. And, and there's no doubt in my mind that, that they were a threat. Um, and of course, eventually the Georgian Bolsheviks fulfilled <laughs> their threat by invading um, Georgia in February of 1921. Um, so, you know, going back to the, this incident in the Alexandra Gardens, which was opposite, you know, the Viceroy's Palace on, on, on Golovinsky Avenue, it was known then. Um, yeah, it was an example of, you know, it was a very different time. It was these were extraordinary times. These were revolutionary times. These were times when ordinary laws and principles were abandoned. But I think in general, it was pre-revolutionary. It was very violent from all sides. Was violence was sort of part of this like larger period, as 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 what I've read from. Sonny's book, uh, Eric Von Ray, is that violence was something very accepted, like wasn't as like the way we uh, we react now to violence. Well, I, I think, you know, that Tsarism embodied that sort of violence, of course, because there was very little opportunity for any sort of political uh, participation. And um, Tsarism, uh, you know, particularly after the concessions it made in 1905, after the 1905 revolution, you know, you had this period of reaction, let's say, under Nicholas II, where, um, you know, the, uh, the the Georgian Social Democratic Party, well, it wasn't a separate party at that time, it was still part part of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, but it was decimated. It was decimated by arrests and exiles, and in some cases, executions. Yeah, absolutely violence. Um, but you know, let let if if you talk about 1917 when when the the events in the Alexander Gardens happened, you've got to remember that you know revolutions, however we define them, they are extraordinary events when when all the rules and values and norms that you normally follow go out of the window. And one one thing we often associate with revolution, but is not necessarily true in every case, um, is violence. Uh, you know, I can think of revolutions. We might even talk about the Rose Revolution as as a as a nonviolent revolution. We might we we might talk about uh, Gandhi's revolution, if you like, if we can call it that, against the British um, after World War II as a nonviolent resistance movement that that overthrew um, imperial rule. So it, you know, violence doesn't always necessarily. It's not always necessarily a part of revolution, but in, in this case, in 1917, yes. 
And, and everything was, of course, accelerated as well. It, it, you know, revolutions very often concentrate, uh, 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 you know, big events and, 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 and major shifts um, in a very short period of time. And, and this was what was happening also in 1917 through to, to 1921. But let me just say this about that, that Alexandra Gardens event, that it was actually one of the first events that was violent um, that, that between the Bolsheviks and, and, and the Menshevik, uh, the Social Democrats, Georgian Social Democrats, um, because there was a yearning uh, among Georgian Bolsheviks and Social Democrats, you know, Social Democrats, some people call them Mensheviks, although I do not. Um, there was a yearning for unity. Uh, you know, a lot of the Bolsheviks did not want to separate out from the mainstream Georgian Social Democrats at this time. Uh, but um, there was an understanding in, in Moscow. Um, you know, uh, Lenin, when he arrived, came out with the April Theses in, in, in I think it was in April 1917. Uh, you know, the idea that, um, you know, uh, we don't join a bourgeois government, we create, uh, we're going to create a proletarian government, and also we're going to split with, with the Mensheviks. So, and there was some resistance to that among Georgian Bolsheviks. I think everyone was against it at first. I think only Lenin was for it. <laughs> At one point, yeah. Well, Lenin, you know, he he pushed it through, and and um, and uh, eventually the Georgian Bolsheviks, you know, uh, because they they were disciplined followers of, of of Bolshevik rules of democratic centralism. You know, they 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 abided by what what was coming down from from the Central Committee, which was split uh, split with the Georgian Social Democrats, which you know by by let's say the summer of 1917 they had and and this is when you really begin to get this fierce battle of survival uh between georgian bolsheviks and georgian social democrats because they had such different uh goals and visions by this time i've noticed a lot of people who use the first republic as a counter to counterpose um you know, against the Soviet Union, but like without the socialist ideas. <laughs> like, so they'll be like, they pretty much hate everything social, socialism, and, you know, any kind of politics that's not right wing or liberal, very liberal in a right wing liberal sense. And so they hate everything related to socialism, yet they will pretend that they are for the First Republic and counterpose that. So, and so I feel like they do it in like bad faith, right? They have like, they don't really care about the First Republic. They don't really care about uh, Soviet Union. They really are just right wing and they're just trying to find any way they can sort of disagree with Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you think uh, gets lost in the discussions around First Republic? Why is it that lots of right wingers use their First Republic often to try to destroy social politics, like socialism or welfare and like any kind of basic welfare politics generally. In contemporary Georgia. In contemporary Georgia, in yeah, contemporary yeah. Georgia. You know, the narrative 
the current narrative, at least that that's focused on 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 the First Republic, right, is is based on this idea of national liberation, right, of of, of independence, um, and, and and certainly, you know, um, the Georgian Democratic Republic, um, uh, you know, should be celebrated for. Um, for its attempt to create a sovereign state, I mean that that that's that's one part of it. Um, the other part of it that is often ignored, however, the narrative that is ignored is is the fact that they were trying to create a social democratic state, um, and that meant um, definitely uh, support of what we would call today, I guess, uh, welfare programs. Um, support in terms of unemployment insurance for for, for workers. Um, the Georgian workers would share in in the um, the running of the factories at some level, or at least they had some control over dismissals of 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 workers by employers. Um, the um, you know the the idea of of self government in in the provinces and regions you know through the Erobar was really in my view yes okay it's a democratic idea but I think it went as Jordania was saying further than the sort of normal understanding of a republic um, to the idea of popular power um, so you know that that part of um, of, of the experience of the First Republic, um, most Georgians know nothing about. Uh, it, it's um, it, it's unfortunate that you know when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, um, we did you know this was a time of what we call neoliberalism, right? A time when um, both the IMF and the World Bank and the, the United States and um, and, and the European, uh, other European, European Union wasn't around then, but you know, other countries in Europe were pushing this this idea of um, the the displacement of the state and its replacement by um, a free market, a privatization, uh, these sorts of things. Um, what we might call, you know. Uh, um, a you know a, a free market vision, if you like, of of the economy, and and also um, related to that, of course, the reduction in the powers of the state, uh, and and its support of um, greater equality or whatever it might be, uh, that all went by the board, right? It went out of the window, um, and and it was within that context that anything uh, that was vaguely associated with um, socialism. Uh, became extraordinarily negative. It starts, of course, with Gamsa Khudir. It continues um, through even Shevardnadze, and then, of course, reaches its apogee, we could say, under Saakashvili. Um, and it's a very one-sided vision. Uh, and um, what it meant was, and this was my experience um, as a scholar, that... Um, when I first started working on the Georgian Social Democratic, you know, on the Georgian Democratic Republic, no one was interested. Uh, nobody knew anything about it. They didn't want to know anything about it. Um, and, um, you know, uh, from being the, 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 the First Republic, from being anathema in the Soviet period, because the Soviet Union didn't want to 
acknowledge it either as a, as a sort of as a as a viable um, political alternative. Um, when we came to the 1990s, post post Soviet Union, the same thing happened. You know, it was it was again continued to be ignored and and rejected as something that was vaguely associated with socialism, and therefore null and void, not worth um, not worth thinking about. Um, and that you know, generally, uh, when we had the hundredth anniversary um, in two thousand eighteen of, of 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 the first republic, I think things begin began to change. There are a, there's a group of young scholars. Um, in Georgia, who are are now doing a lot of fantastic work around uh, the history of the First Republic, and you know, if we start to read their books and, and and articles, we can we we might be able to restore some genuine um, analysis and understanding of, of of the nature of of the First Republic. Um, so I think things are changing with the younger generation, and that that that's very good to see. You mentioned that there was no interest in the First Republic at all, but I was always under the impression that when um, independence uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, happened, you know, the only independent state to which this new government is looking towards inheriting you know, as an independent model is the First Republic. So there's things like the flag, there's things like the Constitution, which get, I believe, like reinstated in some ways. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in your own opinion or your own perspective, your own experience of the ways in which there was pushback against that memory. So, you know, the, 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 um, the Georgian constitution of the First Republic, which was passed in February of 1921, was briefly uh, reinstalled, right, during the, let's say, that interregnum between Gamsul Khudia and Shevet Nadze. So, I, you know, that was more, I would say, symbolic politics. I, I, I don't think it had any relevance. I mean, Gamsul Khudia, you know, was a very right-wing politician. Um, uh, you know, I, I find it um, quite extraordinary, actually, when I look at public opinion polls and and such, and 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 the heroization of of Gamsahudia that that goes on, um, you know, Sarkashvili, of course, promoted that as well. Um, but it's a general consensus, you know, going back to to Gamsahudia as the the savior, if you like. I mean, I think he was actually very destructive. But um, you know, the the uh, um. The first republic really never. I mean, beyond the flag and the you know the brief sort of reinstatement of the constitution, it was it was never uh, you know part of any um, analysis about lessons of the past or uh, you know the, the extraordinary thing about uh, the first republic. You know, if you travel around Italy, right, you will see statues and monuments to Garibaldi. You know, heroes, if you like, of the Italian movement of national unity. You know, if you go to France, you see monuments, even to Robespierre, for God's sake, you know. Uh, and in Georgia, what do we have? I mean, we have a few plaques here and there, and I think, you know, maybe one or two roads are named after some, uh, uh, you know, members of the, of the, the, the government of the First Republic. 
Um, but there's no recognition, there's no public recognition um, of the First Republic, really. It's not incorporated at all into Georgian historiography um, and, and also to... Um, you know, current politics, um, you know, a, a recognition and an acknowledgement of um, really the very um, courageous, innovative, democratic steps that were taken during the period of 1918 to 21. Um, and that, I think, is part of, you know, this this fear, if you like, of 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 socialism, uh, which of course the Soviet Union sort of represented, and 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 I think it poisoned people's minds against the First Republic and and anything that uh, that, that that even liberalism. I mean, you have to ask the question as to why liberal even liberalism seems to have largely failed in Georgia. Um, you know, um, I'm thinking about the. Uh, you know the the failure, for example, of the Republican Party to get any um, sort of established support in Georgian society, and of course its subsequent collapse. Um, there, there doesn't seem. I, I think you know that the Soviet legacy really uh, has distorted Georgian politics. Uh, it, it's it it's. I think it's changing a little bit. Um, but but it's interesting that you know when you when you look at the alternatives that are provided by Georgian political parties, we we just don't see really. Um, we see it in civil society, but we don't see it in political parties. You know, a sort of liberal alternative doesn't doesn't really exist. You know, um, we've been looking at archives, and one of them is Radio Freedom's uh, manual, manual for the editors of the Georgian desk. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, it's a right wing. I mean, so right wing. It's kind of mind boggling. And they have like instructions what to do. And they're like, make sure that you don't say the word colony, but make sure that the Georgians feel like they're a colony. <laughs> and there was like a whole thing about the First Republic. And I laughed. I even took a picture. I can send it to you. It said, um, you know, the rich people, nobles just give, gave land to the First Republic. You know, this idea of expropriation, like the rich people didn't want to noble give up land. Well, apparently it's only because of the Soviets they didn't want to give up land. But because it was like, you know, Jordania, they were willing to give up all their land to socialism or whatever. Just like this ridiculous fairy tale that they were all, everyone was so happy with the socialists uh, during the First Republic. And they were willing to give them land for it without any compensation or very little so the, there was certain mythology, and they even say, I think the word private property in there, you know, like it was like, it was a place where private property was respected. It's like the way they have envisioned it and tried to um, place these sort of libertarian or, or, you know, capitalist liberal values on the First Republic and the way they have been explaining it since 1970s, because that was the freedom, radio freedom, liberty desk those manuals are from the 1970s, like 1976 or something like that. So, and they were constantly talking about how Georgians were oppressed and they need liberation and, and on and on and on. So for me, I don't, I, 
where I differ in this, like, I think of it, it's not just like a Soviet legacy. I don't think it's a Soviet legacy. I think this was very much created. There was, there was so much effort putting it, put to put in to make sure the Soviet Union was seen as a particular way, you know, day in, day out, day in and day out to tell them that this is what's happening. And then no one in the Soviet Union, no one actually was, you know, ideologically committed to anything. So like nobody was saying anything. It was just really like radio freedom and voice of America and so on. And then um, afterwards, it was also the same same kind of talking points forever ad infinitum. Today, you can't say a word about, you know, Soviet Union or socialism without being attacked in a really vicious way. And so I think most people never had even time to think about the Soviet Union at all. You know, they were never given a chance because they have never been asked. It's going from one extreme to another for them. And so like when... Um, so I guess what I'm saying is I feel like it was manufactured a lot of ways, how to feel about the Soviet Union. And that's in some way why our project exists. It's like, I don't think this is how people feel about the Soviet Union. Sure, there's maybe some nostalgia in there, but so is the people who hate Soviet Union you know, entirely. That's also part of their manufactured ideas as well, how to feel about it. So it's not like there is a an objective way. Of course, we're trying to get closer to the truth by trying to, you know, Find more and more for it. So, so Sopo, I, 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 I've always found myself um, in a difficult position on the left when I was in the UK um, and, and to some extent here in the US, um, because I've, I've, I've always uh, taken the position that you know the Soviet Union was a betrayal of socialism. Um, and, and, um, so, you know, very often I'm sure I sounded like a right-wing ideologue when I was talking about the Soviet Union and, and the way that, um, in fact it had, um, distorted what people on the left had wanted to see, right? Um, and, you know, I, for example, consider self-determination and, um, democratic self-government governance very much part of what what i would consider to be uh, a socialist view right um and of course none of that existed in, in in the soviet union and that's not to say that the soviet union uh, didn't have some some positive parts to it but i think you know i i, I spent a lot of time there and I talked about the sort of uh, fantastic fin de siècle that existed at that time in the late seventies. But still, everybody was fearful. It was it was a system in which you could not talk freely. Uh, it was a system too in which you know even let's talk about the workers, right? Um, so um, you know it wasn't as if they they could manage their own lives in, in at the workplace in the factories. They couldn't. They, you know, the whole system was was controlled. It was a very corrupt system. So, um, you know, even even if you 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 could lead a decent life, um, it was a very hierarchical system. We, I talked about this at the beginning. Very privileged system for for certain groups, um, and so it wasn't. Um, it wasn't. I mean, I, I, it was clearly inferior to, to the ideas and principles of the First Republic and even to the practice of the First Republic, which sustained 
a level of, of, of democratic activity uh, that was abandoned in, in the Soviet state. Now, you know, people sometimes they might say, well, here you are, you know, middle class guy talking about the privileges of democracy and so on. But I do think it's absolutely central uh, if we want to retain the credibility of, of, of left wing politics, then dem democracy to me is central to it. Self-government is central to it. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the Soviet Union in many ways um, uh, destroyed the credibility of socialism. I, I think that, uh, you know, why was it after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, uh, left-wing parties and, and, and um, European communist parties, you know, they just all lost their, their, their support and credibility. Um, they went down with the ship, you know. Um, so I think we, we, we have to um, be, be, you know, get, get back to some of the very interesting discussion and debates that were going on in Europe um, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries about the relationship, you know, between uh, nationalism and socialism and how they can be combined uh, self-determination, self-government. I mean, these were all big, honest debates that were going on in the Second International. Um, and and also, to some extent, you know, among European left-wing parties, the Communist Party in Italy, for example, in Spain, you know, it was a movement was called Eurocommunism. I don't know what, you probably don't remember it. But, but the, you know, the, the idea being that um, everybody goes their own way. Everybody has their own, um, uh, you know, um, sovereignty, their own values, their own ideas. They, you know, and this is true, surely, of of, of socialism. That it, it's not. Yes, it is. It, it has shares some universal ideas and principles, um, but they have to be interpreted in different ways according to where you are, and and, and the context. Um, you know, when when you think about even when you think about communism, you know, there's no, as far as I'm concerned, when I look at uh, the way that communism was practiced, um, there's no universal model. You know, every every communist model was a national model at some level. You know, even even among the satellite states of the Soviet Union, like Poland or Hungary, you know, to 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 whatever extent they could, they infused their 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 ideas of communism with national ideas as well so um i you know i understand that uh, there's this nostalgia for for um, among certain people you know we know for example that um according to a, a opinion polling in georgia you know maybe somewhere between 25 and 30% of georgians still have some nostalgia for for the soviet period um, I think that's largely generated by the post-Soviet period and the the real um, economic and social problems that occurred um, and, and continue to exist uh, in Georgia that sort of led people to think, oh, it was so much better in the Soviet period. Um, but to be honest with you, you know, for yeah. them, it was better, objectively. In the Soviet period, well, their lives yeah, were yeah. better. 90%, yes. I would say, yeah. including workers, everyone, because they still have the fear their, their life still being managed by someone else, but they at least had, like, food <laughs> and, like, 
ability to travel and like free education, which now and, and all which they don't have anymore, you know. So I think like if we compare it to a better future, sure. I mean, it's better future is much better, but there's only post-communist world of 30 years of complete, you know, degradation. Or there's a time where they remembered stability and like you know food and and culture, right. like because theaters were open and th- those things were free. And now they don't even have them. All the cinemas have yeah. been converted into totalitazor, you know, like uh, gambling places. Yeah, betting shops. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, the the, the capitalism cannot um, uh, uh, provide either, and and a particular, um, you know, the post-Soviet form of capitalism, which um, is pretty wild. Um, but I, I, you know, at the same time having experienced the Soviet Union and studied the Soviet Union, you know, I, I don't think we should ignore um, the fact that, um, it, you know, it, 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 it wasn't just about suppression of the intelligentsia. It, it was also a failed system in terms of giving people the right to make decisions about their own lives. That, that was never granted. Um, yeah, there were certain... Uh, sort of sort of basic principles in place like free education, which was important. Um, you know, medical care and so on. Um, absolutely, these were very positive things. But um, I think you have to put it in the context of of um, a system that was uh, um, arbitrary in in many ways, and um, you know, decisions could be made about your life. Whoever you were, whether you were a worker or a peasant or, or, or an intelligentsia representative, you know, you had no control over your life, ultimately, in the Soviet system. That's I, I not honestly think most people would agree that they don't have control now. I mean, I understand what you're saying, yeah. but I just think, right. like, most people would feel like they have control yeah, over I mean, their lives at all. Right. I, I mean, all I, the elections I, are right here. You know? <laughs> yes, no, no I, I'm not denying anything. that. Yeah, I'm not denying that. Um, I, I and and that that would be a whole other um, analysis and 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 critique. And um, I would be very much, you know, um, interested in in in, um, in talking about that because I, I think you're right. I think we have rather uh, idealized view of of the post-Soviet period as a period of liberation, um, but. I would yeah, not. That's all you hear. Yeah. I, at the same time, you know, the Soviet Union was not the model that um, uh, that we could sort of contrast in black and white terms with with the post-Soviet period. There were really some very negative parts also to the Soviet system for ordinary people too. So, for example, if you take sorry, but the nostalgia have to mean accepting the entire system. Like, does that? mean that though well look take take an issue like housing right so you know you talk about free housing and and so on very low rents yes absolutely very important um but it was a very corrupt system in terms of the way that housing was distributed and controlled um you know in terms of uh the way that privileges were granted if you were a member of the communist party you know if you were a worker in the communist party you know you you could travel more freely. You could watch certain movies that that, that your fellow workers probably could not. Um, you could go to special shops and get goods that 
your fellow workers could not. You know, it, it wasn't, it, it's still a system that has to be condemned for what it represented, I believe. And I'm, I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm, I'm saying that from the position of a, of a, of a socialist, of a social democrat. One of the main focuses of the project is, you know, memory politics, um, something that I think has become sort of like uh, a recurring theme. One of the reasons we wanted to interview you, one of the reasons we're interviewing a lot of historians is because of the role that memory politics in Georgia has played um, in the development of the ca- uh, form of capitalism that we've been discussing here. And so uh, maybe I would ask, uh, or I would say is like, it seems like the Soviet Union, just like the First Republic, just like capitalism, have all become caricatures. And because there's no um, sort of real uh, common understanding of what the Soviet system was, what the First Republic was, they sort of become stand-ins, instrumentalized tools um, in service of other things. So I guess uh, when we talk about trying to we look at the way in which the Soviet past and Soviet history, for example, in Georgia is being investigated, not on its own terms or its own merit, but in service of other things, you know, for example, through nonprofit organizations that are receiving, you know, funds for particular political ends. And they're the ones who are funding, funding uh, research about, say, uh, the Soviet period, but the only types of research projects they're doing are about repression. So then you lose all of this nuance that we're having in this conversation about what the Soviet past in Georgia was. So what I'm curious about is, is, and I think that even if there are plenty of critiques worth levying against the Soviet Union, the question would be that in Georgia, um, is it possible to have a nuanced conversation about the Soviet Union when the mainstream discourse and the mainstream uh, conversation has been reduced to n- no nuance. So now, you know what I mean? So, so what's, what, one of the reasons we're doing reimagining Soviet Georgia is there's this seems to be this huge dissonance. All of these people who lived through the Soviet Union and lived through the 90s having such horrible post-Soviet experience, plus a seemingly kind of like idealized, negatively idealized version of the Soviet Union that only sees it in terms of occupation, the repression. And so then the question, I think that the task for like what we're trying to do is how do we fill in the gaps? How do we try to actually uh, pay service or pay tribute to the kind of nuanced everyday lived experiences? And what does that negative experience of people in the 90s and the fact that it was so much worse, right? That's objectively true, so much worse from the late night, from the late Soviet period, the 70s and the 80s into the 90s. What does that tell us about the USSR when the only thing in the common Georgian discourse today is about how it was like a repressive apparatus? Because I think that actually if you, ha- if, you're, if you approach the Soviet Union, like you're saying, with a full understanding of the picture, then I think you can actually levy these critiques. Then you can say, well, of course, there were these problems. But when you don't even have the full picture, how are you supposed to? Do you, you, know, you get what I'm saying? I mean, if everyone thought, we would be in a great position. <laughs> right. No, I, I agree with you entirely. I, I, I think that the, there are two things there that you mentioned that uh, sort of hit the mark. I think, you know, firstly is memory politics. It's, uh, you know, memory 
is an instrument of power, right? It's it's how you shape the past that determines the present. I mean, I'm not the first person to say that, right? It 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 um, and uh, and certainly in Georgia, the manipulation of history is always been the case. It continues to be the case, and it's for purposes. You know, you why do you manipulate history? To justify what you're doing in the present, in most cases, right? That's why we talk about uh, memory as a as a source of power, how you shape it. Um, so, so that's very true. And the second part of it is, um, as you say, no discussion of the Soviet period. It's almost a blank page. Nobody wants to talk about it. I mean, part of this is. Um, you know, no discussion, in fact, of what went on in the 1930s, you know, the whole period of the purges and such. And I mean, that, that you know, discussion of that and an understanding of that um, is a liberation in itself. And there's really been no discussion of it. Uh, but also, you know, how ordinary people lived their lives in the, in, the, in the Soviet period. And, you know, one of the ways we can get at that, I think, is oral history. It's a very important part of understanding, um, you know, the way that people experience the Soviet Union. And, and it might open, you know, it, it certainly will increase our understanding of how, how ordinary people, let's say, experience this and, and, and um, what their thoughts about their lives were at the time. You know, unfortunately, we've, we've missed so much of that because so many people from that period have died. Um, but you know, we, we that that's what we should be doing now. Um, we should be recording um, people who who lived in these times, and and you know that that would be perhaps the best way to to open these doors and windows to to better understanding of the Soviet period, as your 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 project is is directed at, right? Um, because. I think, you know, right now, Georgian historians and historiography is just not up to it, except in the younger generation, maybe. But no one, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know it's not a very nice thing to say, but, you know, Georgian um, historical exploration of this period is, if it does take place very often, it's not, it's, it's totally inadequate. Um, you know, partly because of this sort of, general very negative view of the soviet period right um so there's nothing that you, you, people don't go to it, go into it with an open mind so um yeah i mean I, I i would agree with that and i'm i'm hoping that um you know some of the younger generation um in georgia are are open to i mean i think the people active like irakli khadagiani and others in sovlab are definitely um exploring those those issues through oral history projects and i'm glad that you are too um i think you know this is this is one way to go um as sopa said we've been going to the archives we've been spending time at the manuscript archive um and in sabartalo and there is a um collection both the Radio Freedom Collection, but also the, a collection that's being processed by a Cold War era uh, Georgian immigre, Ivan Nanuashvili, who uh, who was in who's a very kind of like he's an interesting character, but he was in the uh, you know fought against the Soviet 
Sovietization of Georgia, became a um, general in the Polish army, and then immigrated to the United States. And he was sort of part of this anti-communist emigre world in the United States in the Cold War. But what's interesting is that, when, and he's one of the few Georgians who's in, you know, kind of with some of these uh, larger sort of immigre anti-communist networks. But what's interesting about his writing, and he's writing in Georgian and English and Polish and Russian, but his writings are always trying to frame, because he's a military person, uh, the future of Georgia as being only seen in kind of a military geopolitical context, but from the right, you know, him saying that it must be a protectorate of the West um, in order to sort of like undo the continuities between the Russian imperial period into the Sovietization, which are just one long Russian imperial story um, in the country. And so what's interesting about that is that it seems like um, in some of the ways that the anti-Soviet, anti-communist narratives of the post-Soviet period took hold in a geopolitical sense in Georgia, um, that there was actually uh, a narrative before that in the Soviet period of people who weren't in the USSR who were already trying to kind of frame it as say like, you know, Georgia, Georgia can only exist. And this is, this is maybe the, the point I'm trying to get at that Georgia's sovereignty can only exist if it's protected by the West. Um, and, and to me, this has always been a really interesting sort of contradiction of Georgian sovereignty, Georgian discourses about independence is that, you know, is, is it actually possible given Georgia's size, given its placement, um, to think about, uh, you know, its own independence in a way that doesn't just feed into this narrative of Western reliance, you know? Um, and to me, it's been, it's been kind of like shocking, I guess, like how there is a stream of hardcore kind of nationalism um, that maybe throws around the language of sovereignty, but at the end of the day reproduces it. So for example, even some of the, disc- and maybe this goes back to the, dis- the First Republic, and I wanted to bring this up earlier, but it's like, it's, you know, the, the First Republic, even uh, in a geopolitical sense, like, its reliance on Western patronage to even exist if it's seen in tension with Bolshevization or the Soviet Union. And so, you know, I don't know. I don't really have one concrete. Sort of one, exactly yeah. how Russia says or Soviet right. Union See, or Stalin said is that Georgia will always be used upon by the West to undermine them. Right. So, so in a way, they're both reinforcing it. Right, that was, that was exactly the point I was going to get to, is that it seems like the Russian, so the, sort of like maybe you could say the Russian chauvinist narrative today would say that Georgia can only imagine itself as being a sort of pawn of NATO, pawn of the West, but then you actually have this Russian, this, um, what it seems to me would be a, a wing or a narrative of Georgian nationalism that reinforces this narrative by saying that, you're right, it's true, we must have Western patronage, you know, I, I think that uh, generally um, there has been this emphasis, um, s- certainly since independence for Georgia after 1991, of you know reliance on the West, obviously, as, as patrons and support uh, for Georgian security. Um, and, and, and there's been, a, you know, it's, it, you can understand why, but there is this sort of, sort of uh, security approach to, to, towards Georgian sovereignty. And um 
you know, I, I feel that, you know, Georgia, um, even if it has a 30,000 person army, obviously is not going to be able to protect its, its security from, from, uh, from Russia. Uh, so it's not a military question for Georgia. I mean, obviously they, 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 they have to have a military for certain purposes. Um, what, what really is important about Georgian sovereignty is, of course, um, a democratic state in which is fully legitimate and, and in which um, um, popular participation is, is front and center. So that there is no, um, so that in, in, in other words, to take a phrase, you know, the fortress is strong within. You know, you don't need those external barriers so much when you have a, um, a functioning democratic um, popular government in which the, 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 the citizens feel they are citizens. Um, you know, that's the greatest source of sovereignty. That's the greatest source of strength for, for, for any country. Uh, Georgia doesn't have that yet, I don't think. You know, there's still this um, this problem of 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 a, of a government that seems to be completely out of touch with with the needs of of its citizens. <laughs> Gaza polis me gobre vida me pante potle bivi, da me pante potle bivi. Zogio miskarish hamshi.